Today on the pod, freelancer Sarah Stancorb restores your faith in government through the beauty of good old-fashioned optimism, but not without first acknowledging how motivating good old-fashioned mom-delivered pessimism can be. She also recounts her publication journey, which is one of the most exciting we've had on the show. And we talk about her latest Washington Post piece on the fierce women blog writers supporting sex abuse survivors in the Protestant church. I think it gives everyone this health check warning. <laughs> it's a disclaimer. If this gets screwed up, it's not. It's like the doctor who like tells almost every patient, no matter how much they weigh, they should drink less and like eat less. <laughs> All roads lead to the Rust Belt, apparently. And back out for a lot of people. <laughs> Do you need me to say everything all over No, no, no. I don't need you to say everything all over again. I will find out a way to edit your earrings out. Okay. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, no, I dress up for <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Before the earth blows up and we're torn asunder by tornadoes and floods and locusts, and before we're all haunted by the ghost of Kirk Cameron, and there are no more fossil fuels to power our devices, I hope we'll decide one of the internet's lasting legacies will be that good people wrote really powerful stuff and it was available to lots and lots of us. At that point, we will recognize anew the work of people like Sarah Stancorb. Stancorb is a journalist who writes on issues of faith and culture, feminism and social enterprise for the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, Catapult, and Slate, among others. What Stancorp does so masterfully is assemble the premise of an argument as elegantly as a tour guide laying out one of those ancient analog devices known as an actual map. She assertively points out the places you've been, reminding you what you may already know, but then she takes you by the shoulders, kindly and not without deafness, to point you in the direction you need to go. It is this steering, this asking of something from you, the reader, that I value most. Look again, she says, where are we going? Where are we all going? Often this work requires a thick skin and a willingness to put yourself in a position to be criticized, trolled, and threatened. But without people like Sarah willing to write stories like the one that comes out this morning in the Washington Post, we would lose our way in this seemingly infinite sea of information. A service for which the majority of us, and I do believe it's a majority, are so grateful. Sarah, thank you for coming on the show. That's the nicest thing anyone <laughs> has ever said about me. <laughs> thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing the work that you do every day. I have no idea how you write so much and do all of the things that you do, but we'll talk about it and kind of try to figure that out. Uh, we usually have a third voice online with us, but she's about to head into surgery. And uh, yeah, oh, no. and so it's minor, not minor kind of deal, but she should be on the men in a, several weeks and be able to get back to podcasting with us. Uh, so you'll hear Kate's voice and my voice 
on this podcast. The other co-host, Jessica, she sends her regards. She also did all the research with me and loves, uh, oh, no. loves your work and is, is really sad to miss. But um, she said to tell you hello. When we, we started researching for season three, which we've only had female writers on the show this season, which has been lovely and amazing, we've turned to a couple of times the personal essay. And while we were researching for your episode, we read Until We All Have Voices, which is one of your personal essays from 2017, which I thought was lovely and gorgeous. I wonder if you, or I'm anxious to hear how that essay came to be and maybe what, you know, how it differs from the other sort of research-based work that you do and the, the long-form articles that you write. So that particular essay, I have to say, I think I wrote 10 different times. Oh my goodness. Um, so it, and just for the listeners, because I'm assuming most of them have never heard of me, um, I have a vocal disorder, which they, I'm sure you can hear. And as a teenager, I first kind of cropped up when I was in drama club, I was on speech team, I wanted to be an actress. And then my voice started cracking and we had no idea what was going on. Um, and then flash forward to college when I did a diagnosis. I have, um, I have dystonia throughout my body, but I have spasmodic dysphonia with my vocal cords is the same thing as diamine. Mm-hmm. And the treatment is Botox injections into your vocal cords. And at that time, I was so desperate to gain what I thought would be a perfect voice. I kept going back for these injections that had the side effect of making me mute for a month. And then I had another mute, a very soft voice. And I had this episodic period of my life where in order to have this voice that I wanted, I gave up any voice at all. And it was really a a traumatic period. And I think that's why I had to write that essay so many different times because the process of writing it helped me come to terms with, with that period, but also with the fact that no treatment is really going to change the way I sound. And I better accept the voice I have and use it as well as I can. So that, that essay, it, it helped me a lot in the process of writing it. And, and by the time it finally published, I think I finally got into the point where I was over it. And I think with a lot of my essays, once I found, once they feel completed, I'm through whatever issue it was I was trying to figure out through the process of writing, which is probably fairly common <laughs> for a lot of people um, writing memoir or just personal essay. Yeah, if Jessica and I have been working on some as a sort of side project, we give each other assignments, which we've talked about on the show before. And, and I do feel that I feel like you don't really know what you you have to say until you've said it. You know, you don't you don't really mm-hmm. I think the process of writing these things teaches us more about ourselves than we initially suspect. Did you find your voice in that essay was different than what you had written before? And I guess I wonder if it had any effect on your sort of more research-based article writing. Um, 
Uh, I wouldn't say that my voice was not itself impacted the way I wrote other stories. I, I think it changed my outlook in life and maybe how I saw myself within the world, maybe more politically mm -hmm. than as a writer. Um, but it definitely shifted over time, I think. In the, in the beginning, it was just, this was a devastating thing for me. And so I was sorting through being devastated. Mm -hmm. And now when I write about my voice, it's very different even than in the essay. And it's really only been a couple of years. But in the time since I came out, and frankly, I could just post the link or send the link to someone instead of having to explain myself. Right. It, it helps simplify a lot of things for me, too. Right. But um, that story, that, and when I ended up running for city council in my town, a very abbreviated version of that story became part of my stump speech because I wanted the voters in the room to know, like, I just sound like this. I'm not nervous. I always sound like this. Mm -hmm. But the point for me is, like, I found a metaphorical voice, and I'm here to speak up for other people. So I guess in that way, yeah, it informs my reported work because I, I'm in a position where, you know, not every story I want to write gets published, but a lot of them do. Right. And when I find people who are doing amazing things, I often am able to push and get that story out where I think it should be so that more people know about the, the good work that other people are doing in the world. And that's a powerful thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you mind? So um... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not silenced anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> Except when our Zencaster drops us <laughs> off. off. Why would you say that at this particular juncture? Everything. Yeah, I don't want to jinx anything. I, I'm sorry. You I'm sorry. Totally Sarah. just jinxed us. <laughs> Sarah, do you mind reading an excerpt? I'll just read the first part of an essay that I also published in Catapult. It was. Um, Fabric of Community Gone Threadbare, a tour of Ohio's new Trump country. And I'm actually sitting in my hometown library right now reading this. So it, it feels especially poignant. <laughs> yeah. I tumble into town, as I do now, kids in booster seats, back of my crossover stuff with noise, suitcase, sleeping bags, candle, and iPad to keep the kids occupied for the hours between our home and the place they came of age. We exit just before Youngstown and wind through a familiar terrain, the pizza joint that rotates owners, shut down, reopened, shut down, the old book and ooze is now a consignment shop, stocked with used toys and furniture. The Bail Bonds office has mannequins wearing stripes and chains in its display window. So the town has a quirky Bail Bondsman. <laughs> the kids in back don't see any of it. The little face is zombified by screen time. My hometown no longer feels like home. We drive along a few smaller roads past the library, 
that the Oliver schoolhouse once stood and turn at the corner of my parents' street. There used to be a two-story home with beige siding on that corner. Now it's just grass. The house fell into disrepair during the foreclosure crisis. Raccoons overtook it. It had to be torn down. The weather is still warm. It's a relief. I spend winters now aware that my father shouldn't be outside shoveling, not with his emphysema, and that the younger generation, the ones pitched in, have all moved on. There's an extent to which my parents, whose mortgage predated subprime and was paid off in reasonable chunks before and during the financial crisis, are among the last ones standing. They and their few remaining neighbors are christened by the happenstance of settling down when times were bad but not busted a decade or two before bankers perfected the exploitation of the American dream. We eye the sign out front warning of their badass dog. My son is still naive enough to believe it's an error. Perhaps Pop-Pop is declaring himself as bad as a dog. <laughs> The house to one side appears to have tenants. I wonder about them. There have been rounds of busts. My mom emails me when a previous neighbor was arrested for trafficking heroin. The landlord who bought the house for a song doesn't appear to do background checks. We burst into the house with shouts and hellos with the overexertion of his wagging tail. My mom shouts that the dog just simmered down leans over her walker to hug me. My parents ask if we saw the construction on Interstate 80 that had swallowed their exit in a sea of orange barrels. Now it can't quite even be that. There's neighborhood news. Did we see they finally knocked down old Trumpy's house? I vaguely remember a family named Trump Hauer, or some variant, who lived a few houses up the street. My parents only ever referred to the family's patriarch as Trumpy. Such a shame, such a shame, that name, my mom says, easy on two feet and one walker, back to the living room where MSNBC is blaring. I try to remember when that family moved away, or maybe when old Trumpy died, perhaps a decade or so ago. Chris Hayes is on TV, his forehead shiny, trying to make sense of the election. We all were. My parents' district had always been reliably blue union country. But in 2016, for the first time in my life, the majority of people in my home county voted for a Republican candidate. Trump won them. He won. Across the city line in slightly poorer, far more diverse Youngstown, Clinton won despite Trump's claims to the contrary. It wasn't enough. Bob's house might be next, my dad informs me, muting the TV. Bob, his friend, a gruff guy who lived further up the street, who perpetually had grease under his nails, stubble on his cheeks, and exuded an air of intolerance for nonsense, became something of a neighborhood legend for rescuing a baby squirrel and keeping a window cracked to his enclosed front porch for years, so once the squirrel moved outdoors, it could still visit. Bob died about a year and a half ago. Cancer, I think. 
The house next door didn't sell, Mom tells me. My parents sprawling in Brie House, one of the oldest on the block. is spangled with a robe and chimes, hanging from the porch awning. Their former next-door neighbor, a man in his 60s who couldn't earn enough as a Walmart greeter, has moved out. After the foreclosure, he squatted in the house for close to a year with the curtain. Living with his daughter didn't work out. My parents aren't sure where he is now. But my dad has inside information. Had all the guy selling it because we needed to have that tree out back cut down. And they needed permission to have the crane on their side of the fence in the driveway. I wonder if the guy he's referring to is someone from the bank. I don't get a chance to ask. Dad peers at me like a man with a hot secret and drops his voice. They had an auction and weren't going to sell unless they got an offer of at least $18,000. They didn't. Couldn't sell the thing. Now it might go too. Go, meaning this one too, might be demolished. Something heavy and unspoken sinks into my chest. There is no way my parents will ever make what they should on their house if they try to move. Not in this neighborhood. Last time we were here, they mentioned that another house in the neighborhood was up for sale for $8,000 from the county land bank. 6000 if the buyer was willing to live in it while fixing it up. I started trying to calculate how we could afford a second mortgage if we tried to buy them a house closer to us, far away from this place. Even if they can sell their house, it wouldn't be enough for down payment elsewhere. But they can't stay in this big aging house, full of stairs, my mom in a walker, and my dad with his breathing. They managed the short, sheer force of my father's will, his insistence on taking care of them both. But I see no other way to get them out. I've asked. They refuse. Did your mom tell you about her visit from Tan Man? Dad asks, starting to chuckle. They've always done this, indulged in nicknames for characters around the neighborhood. A guy down the street who lounges drunk and shirtless in his front yard gathering sun all summer. It's typical fodder for a good story. I drift while listening. I can't get in on the bit. Stories about the neighborhood used to feel so alive, so connected. A soap opera set among the mostly unemployed with a junk truck circling in the background and a single mom with a crush wandering over daily to ask my dad for puffs on his cigarettes and his albuterol inhaler, depending on her mood. I can't tell if it all feels distant and contrived because the neighborhood is now so full of absences or because I'm now so detached from what's left. This used to be my world too. It's all just fragments. Oh man. I particularly love how you can weave these very personal stories about the tan man or Bob and his baby squirrel into this larger fabric. I think you do that a lot in, in across all of your, your writing. But then there's those bigger lines about um, 
the public, right? Later on, you write about one of the lines was, we were not some kind of industrial Pompeii of workers frozen in lost time. Or Mm -hmm. the the line about you um, sort of wondering about losing your mother to poverty as, as so many else had been lost. To me, that's whatever the form it's all storytelling. And I think that's what makes it hard to click away if you're reading online or, or it's, it's that part of the story that sticks. I wonder what your storytelling background is. Hmm. So uh, that's a different question than I thought you were going to ask right then. <laughs> so I, uh, I think my first poem published in the local mini page in fourth and fifth grade and I thought that was the biggest deal. <laughs> I was a pretty shy kid and it's it's really kind of suiting that I actually am sitting in this library right now because I spent a lot of time walking from our house over to the library getting a stack of Christopher Pike books or Nancy Drew depending on what age I was mm-hmm. and I would I always was reading as a kid, and so by middle school, I wanted more than anything in the world a word processor, because that just seemed, that's what a writer would use. <laughs> um, and in, and in um, high school, I wrote the team page for a local newspaper, but then with everything that went weird with my boys and kind of working through having no idea what to do with my life my mother put the fear of god in me as a child like she got this financial aid book from youngstown state university and i don't remember what was in it but i was in like grade six and she opened it and said if you get straight a's you'll get a scholarship and you'll go to college if you don't you'll end up in this town on welfare and pregnant Oh my god. That was my option. Oh my god. So I had to go to college, but I had no idea what that meant. Like I didn't know people who went to college. I have an older brother who went to college, but like he studied kinesiology or something. I didn't know what to do. So by the time I got to college, I wasn't practical enough to look for a program that had a clear career path. I was mostly lost. But I met these really cool philosophy and world religion professors who wrote books. And I thought if I became an academic, I could write books. That sounded like a good alternative to being an actress. <laughs> and then I only in graduate school at the University of Chicago, where the motto, the unofficial motto, is University of Chicago where fun goes to die. I discovered that I did not enjoy academia. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So what was the what was the unofficial model? The University of Chicago where fun goes to die. Oh my word. That's awesome. It's truly not fun there. Um, and I just also felt so detached and Growing up where I grew up and then landing in the University of Chicago, where there's just a stone wall that feels like a fortress that was built to keep the rest of the south side of Chicago out, I felt far more comfortable talking to the people on the outside of the wall 
than to the people on the inside of the wall. Uh -huh. And that kind of swept me into nonprofits and teaching for a few years. And not until about 2008, when um, I got pregnant with my son, did I really seriously consider writing as a career. I had this baby kind of growing in me, and I was picturing trying to teach him about life and what he could be in the world. And I didn't want him to grow up believing dreams should be deferred. Hmm. And so I opened my computer and I started writing a collection of short stories that I thought, you know, at least this is something and I'll, I'll try to get this published. And I, I read, you know, all the websites with tips on getting a literary agent. And I, I tried to get an agent with it and that didn't work out. I mean, I hadn't seriously written anything since high school. So, um, but I also learned you need uh, samples of writing in order to, you know, prove to people you're legitimate. So I started writing essays and I sold those. So uh, it's been a decade of trying to prove my legitimacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's how I became a writer. <laughs> you, should, you should write that book, How to Prove Your Legitimacy. Writer's uh, yeah. It's going to end with one big question mark, unfortunately. <laughs> That's so good. I feel, I often approach, I think, a lot of things about my writing, about what I want my kids to take from it. It is sort of like an overarching principle that can guide us through these, like, gauntlets when you're trying to figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. What? Do you, so how do you do that? Because I, I was thinking about this. I listened to an episode of Radio Lab recently where they had the producers of the show reveal kind of some tricks and hacks about how they find their stories because they're you know, each episode is such an interesting story. So they kind of pulled back the veil to say how they do that. And um, it was also something lovely I found about your work is that like, the internet is so vast and the information that we receive is um, coming at us constantly from all kinds of places. I often know, don't know how to keep it organized. Um, and I, you know, as so many of us do, end up scrolling through cat videos and shit. <laughs> But kind of diving into one person's work, diving into your work, provided this sort of schema for me to organize, you know, ways of looking at this part of the internet, which I really, really loved and was just sort of wondering if how you figure out what you're going to write about next and what's the next story? How do you keep things in the pipeline? Do you have any, any hacks, revelations? Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure my method is one other people should mimic. <laughs> so... I, I always have way more stories that I want to tell than I'm able to place. So I keep a Google spreadsheet every year of all of the story ideas that I have. And then it has, I've had to add more columns than are naturally on a Google spreadsheet because <laughs> I list so many publications. Uh -huh. And I just try, like, story one, I pitch it here, did they accept it? No, move on. And I think for a freelancer, 
I mean, I'm in a bunch of freelance groups, and I'll see people post, you know, I pitched three stories this week, and they can't believe they pitched that many. And I think I would starve to death if that's all I were pitching, because most stories, and maybe they're better at pitching than I am, but most stories, you have to find like, the right editor, the right publication, and the right mood with a really weird curiosity of the same thing you have a weird curiosity for. <laughs> yeah. And it's like matchmaking. Mm-hmm. And I don't, there may be a science, but I'm failing on that front. <laughs> so it's just, it's like, it's mostly for me to remember, oh, I heard about this, or often, if I'm doing a really deep dive story where it's just, there's so much information, there are pieces that I just cannot include that I know could stand as their own story somewhere else. So I'll pop them into the spreadsheet for when the base story is over and then return to it. I have two stories like that that kind of could spin out from the Washington Post um, magazine story that published this morning. So I have that, and then in my office, I have a whiteboard where I just track everything I'm currently working on. So the story is the client work, which is vital if you're going to be making income. Like it cannot all be essays. You will never eat if it's only essays. And the reported <laughs> work, even when it pays well, if it's $1.50, even two bucks a word, that's that, this last story. It was nine months of oh my gosh. work. And it wasn't nine months consistent. I mean, I was working on other stuff, but it's so much time that, and I don't get paid until like two weeks after publishers or a month after publishers. Right. So if I don't have a steady stream of other work, I'm dead. Right. I kind of have my mother's outlook on on these sorts of things. Like there's the good alternative or you are dead. That's so Ohio. That's so Ohio. My mom, my mom, our whole family's from Ohio, but my mom's sort of motto is um, equally as fatalistic. Hers is the world's full of idiots and assholes. And sometimes <laughs> sometimes you find both in one place. Or another. Oh, my so, yeah. Yes. It's like Ohio is like the seedbed of a dystopian outlook on the world or something. <laughs> There's lots of good things about Ohio, too. So yeah. yeah, and yeah, I think in my 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 weird local political life that I have now, I I'm so ridiculously optimistic and hopeful <laughs> that and it's a strange time to be politically hopeful. Yeah, that I, I think all that can exist in Ohio all at one time. <laughs> So I want to hear I want to hear both about the piece you worked on for nine months that came out today, and then I also want to hear about the councilwoman position and how you're managing to do all of that. Can you do Can you do both of those things? <laughs> can you? I guess sure. tell us about the article first. Yeah. So I I still it literally published online maybe ten minutes before we started talking. So yeah, I'm I was madly refreshing my my page this morning, trying to find it before I headed over to the studio and didn't find it. So I'm so anxious to get to get my hands on it. But sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So I'm 
freaking out, really worried about the women in the story. It will think about it. Uh, let's see. So I think last summer I happened, I was in one of those lulls where I had not been keeping close enough track on what stories I had in the pipeline. So I was like emailing people who I'd written about before or had interviewed before just saying, do you have any, is anything cool going on? And Ashley Easter, who's a pastor in North Carolina, who's also a Christian abuse advocate, said, hey, have you heard about these bloggers? And I hadn't, and I started reading these blogs. And there is one called Warp, the Warpbird Watch. There is another called Watch Keep. There are a number of other ones that focus on spiritual abuse that I had been aware of from previous stories. But these first two had been breaking church sex abuse stories off and on for for one of them for almost 10 years, the other one for eight years. Wow. And they're run by these like, basically like stay-at-home moms who, mm-hmm. for one reason or another, became very aware of the way sex abuse is also covered up within Protestant churches. Both of them had at one point back background, and they are the most fierce, unapologetic women you will ever meet. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone will one day make a movie about them, but they lay out pedophiles, and they tell stories from survivors, and because they're not journalists, they don't have to go through the hoops that like, even I had to go through with this story with the lawyers and double-checking both sides. They they do plenty of background research, and they will often call the accused either right before the story posts or after they try to get comment from the churches. And they're, they're basically an armchair investigative journalist mm. who no one is paying. They just do it because it's the right thing to do. And so I've gotten to get to know them over the course of these last nine months as they broke stories and made life really difficult for pastors who, I mean, one one of the stories, as I mentioned in my piece, was a man who was a sex offender who'd been, you know, to jail, who never seemed to have told his church when he moved to Vermont and became a pastor. And oh so God. on this like small Christian blog, this woman, Dee Parsons, broke the story. And then that led to um, the local newspaper and its USA Today affiliate looking into the story. And then it became national news. And then, at least now, his church knows. Um, and when I called the church for comment, they just said, oh, that's old news. <laughs> what? So, <laughs> fine. And they're, they're keeping him on, and that's their choice. But at least they now know. Um, oh, gosh. But yeah. it, it was fascinating because it's getting to know these women who for the most part, are 
part of churches where men have authority and women are told they do not have the authority to speak out on these issues. They are not allowed to have leadership positions. And so they found this world online where they can exert this authority and where they are the only ones many times speaking up for the survivors of abuse while their churches repeatedly turn a blind eye. And they're just so freaking cool. It's just it's so <laughs> amazing. Like, I think, and, and something about like people who fall into this mix of characteristics I find very fascinating. Like, I am just so taken by feminist evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Like, those words seem like they don't go together. Or these Christian blogger women who take people down on Twitter when they aren't honest with their churches mm -hmm. because they're answering to, like, a higher moral authority and they do it because of their faith right and I, I just that's they're they're amazing to me we've we've actually had a couple in the studio this season who have been on different parts of their faith journeys and one wrote well actually they both wrote memoirs about their um departure from the church and the ties that they still have to old ways of to the traditions that led them in a lot of ways to fuller lives. But then, you know, what breaking away or in one case, you know, completely rejecting their, you know, the foundations of their faith from, you know, their formative years, how that has shaped them. They both wrote really beautiful memoirs about that. But I, I, I'm thinking about that piece you wrote teaching my daughter uh, that God could be, that might, that God might be a girl. And you, how you quote Peters? What's what's her first name? Uh, Rebecca Todd Peters. Yeah, Rebecca Todd Peters. And she said that as long as we continue to allow a male monopoly of language for the mm. divine, without balancing it with female languages and images, we capitulate to the powerful privilege of male-dominated culture and then replicate those structures in our very speech. Which is like just a complete abending but it doesn't mean you have to, I mean, it means for the, the male dominated culture that they have to relinquish, but we're not saying like God has to go away completely. You're not like eliminating that possibility for your daughter or the possibility that she finds that, you know, even if the experience has been different from you, it's just like, you know, an opening up. Can we just look at this in a different, different way, please, for one second, you know, I can't wait to read this story because the women you interview sound like amazing warriors which is very cool so when you were doing this piece what kind of things did you see recurring you know from these men you know were there patterns about theology toxic masculinity you know did you see anything that reoccurred for you um i mean there are definitely repeated patterns so i mean and I don't know if you've been following the Houston Chronicle. Yeah, um, yeah. But within the Baptist Church, it's absolutely been standard that when there are accusations, pastors just get moved. And that information does not necessarily follow them. And so these patterns of abuse 
spread geographically as the ministers of shuffle within the church. Um, within an individual church, you may have um, people who come forward. And in the case of one woman whose story broke on these blogs, um, Jules Woodson, she was asked if she had participated, and it was sort of waved off as, you know, an indiscretion. And the pastor was allowed to stay. And when there were rumors, um, instead of it being that this man in a position of authority had driven her down dark dirt road and asked her to give him oral sex, that instead the rumors that spread within the church were that when he finally was, when he finally did leave, that he had kissed a girl in the church. And it oh was made gosh. so much more innocent. And because it was a church that preached purity, she was ostracized. Oh, oh my word. And so there are these ways that like shame mm -hmm. is used as a weapon. And I think that's very consistent. Also, something that came up in a number of ways after there is an incident that does get a lot of attention. So there were two different churches in Parson's story that had had a pedophile within the church. And until Parsons, and like in person, these had been her church houses, until she pushed back and pushed back and forced attention on it, there hadn't been any change. But now, years later, there are policies around sex offenders being in the church and how seriously these claims are taken. But it would not have happened without her. And that's, I think, the lesson is without these voices demanding justice, the system does not change. Even, even within a church where people are, you would think, answering to a higher authority and higher standards than we expect in the civil sphere until someone demands better and flips the narrative of shame and places shame where it belongs, right. the, the rules don't change. Can you come be our councilwoman in Houston? <laughs> Please. We will do all the work it takes to make that happen. I, I live I, in the most I, lovely little Ohio town. Oh, so you're not leaving. You're not leaving the Rust Belt for the Bible Belt? Come on, Sarah. <laughs> Well, and now, so where I live now is closer to Cincinnati, mm -hmm. so we're not, I don't think we're even really considered the Rust Belt. Mm. It's, it's like a different section of Ohio for our, for our own, own interesting set of issues. <laughs> okay, so I want to know how you got from, so you had a baby. And then you decided you're going to freelance and mm -hmm. you were doing all that and you were doing nonprofit work. And then how did you decide to run for city council? Well, I mean, that's like in uh, a seven year trajectory, what <laughs> you just said. So I, I initially was freelancing while working full time mm -hmm. with a baby. While my husband was in residency, he's a pediatric neurologist. 
So life was intense. Um, yeah. And then once I got pregnant with our second child, our daughter, um, we realized we would not be able to afford childcare for both where we were living outside of D.C. And by then, my freelance work had started to take off and it seemed like it would provide a stable income. So for the first year of her life, I launched as a full-time freelancer with an infant at home. So that was also challenging. I basically did not sleep. I would time interviews to when she was due for breastfeeding. So once I had a phone interview scheduled with Gina Davis, which I've been very excited about, and Gina Davis was late, and my daughter was screaming, but I didn't want to feed her because then she would cry during the interview. This is a phone interview. So finally, like, the phone rang, and I, like, popped the baby on, and then we did the interview, and she was quiet because she was starving. Um, but that was my life. And then we moved back to Ohio, which now we can afford, you know, childcare. They're now older. They're both in school. So we had gotten to this kind of stable situation, and then Donald Trump became the president. And also during that time, um, I had become involved just kind of on a volunteer basis with Moms Demand Action for mm-hmm. Gun Sense in America. Mm-hmm. And I'd even gone to Columbus once for a lobby day because they were, um, our state legislature was considering a really ridiculous uh, bill that eventually did expand concealed carry to daycares and a bunch of public spaces and allowed cities to expand concealed carry on city properties. So I had that, that had been like my first big political activity. And then it became law and Trump was president. And then our city council used that law to expand concealed carry in our city. And I mean, I had been uh-huh. writing about this law for like a national publication. Uh-huh. And then it happened in my backyard, and I missed it. I didn't see it coming. So for a month, a bunch of people in the community organized, and they were able to, like, push back. And the city council rescinded within a month. I mean, it was it was just over and done. Oh my but I kept telling everyone I knew, you should run for office. You should run for city council. <laughs> and everyone had a million, million excuses and legitimate reasons why they could not. And a few of the smarter ones just shut me up, turned it back on me, and said, what if you run? And so uh, I did. And so now, now I have this even busier life with a lot of commission meetings and occasional committee meetings and so many meetings with people in town. But it's been like, the best thing for coping with this particular political moment that we're living in oh, wow. because um i mean i i get so much blowback over seemingly small things if you're not involved with them like over parks we're on round two right now with a small park and whether or not we should have a fence or have the youngest kids in town play soccer there. Oh there was gosh. a huge uproar over a tree being cut down right when I took uh-huh. office. 
So, I mean, it, it, it's very much like partisan right in some ways. <laughs> wow. But then you also see that like, people who are willing to invest that much energy into something that they care about in their town and they're willing to do research and they come up with data and it's like the most extraordinary thing. Like it, it feels like the, the, the American model feels broken some days and then I have like 10 people show up for a meeting about a park. Yeah. I feel like my faith in the ability of government to do things is slowly being restored. I hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look, look that, local. That's okay. Okay. It's not a dystopia. It's you know? not. It's not. Yeah. The, what's that series of movies like Hunger Games? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah. describing so, like your mom's <laughs> attitude towards you know education and it got it got me it got me to college though. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. awesome. So yeah, and I think what's really restored my faith in our, our country is the few pieces I've written about being on city council. Mm-hmm. The number of women I've heard from who email me or they message me and they are considering running. And I mean, I, I've been pretty honest, like it's hard. <laughs> it takes a lot of time and energy and they read that and they still want to do it and they want help to do it and they want advice and that's the best thing because the more people who do get involved because they they want to make their community stronger mm-hmm. that'll bubble up and i think there's there's all that talk you know the pink wave and the blue wave but whatever whatever you want to call it what's happening at the local level with so many women i think is going to be restorative um and you know eventually a lot of these people are just a national office so there's hope there too so uh what comes next for you after this story came out today i'm sure you said you had other things going at the same time you were working on this nine month piece do you have another big one in the pipeline or uh so i have a few stories that i'm just about to start pitching there are um, abuse related that I found while mm-hmm. working on this story. Um, and I have a lot of client work, but I also have been toying with a couple of book ideas. So, I mean, that's, that's still like my big dream. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I hate, I never know if this is the right question because it's like that, Thing that George Saunders always used to get, or he, I mean, mm-hmm. he's like a master of the short story, but everyone kept asking him, When's your novel come out before Lincoln and the Bardo? He's like, I, I write short stories, like, right? Does there have to be a novel next, but you do, you have, you have book ideas too, huh? Yeah, so, and I, I mean, maybe, maybe I am only short form or long form article, like, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I, I, have a, two different nonfiction ideas that I think would just be amazing to work on. Um, and I also I had something really bizarre happen last year. I was going through like every spring, I sort of hit this 
period of time where I realized, oh my God, I've been working so hard on all my deadlines and now I, I don't know what's next. Mm-hmm. And I had also um, found an email address for my childhood favorite author, just um, literary agent. And I'd gotten it into my head that I wanted to talk to him like more than anything in the world. So at this time where I felt like, you know, I don't know what my next story is. And I already had like a book proposal that hadn't sold. I ended up tracking down um, Kevin McFadden. His uh, head name is Christopher Pike. Yeah. And oh my gosh. it was, it was like the most amazing thing. And then we now are still in touch by email and we talked a few times. Aww. And he just tricked me into starting to write a novel, <laughs> which I never, I, I mean, I had written those short stories way back when I started writing, but he just, he has been working on a lot of things all at once that hasn't been just finishing. So he told me we would exchange chapters to help him focus and get done. And I felt like I would write anything if it would mean like, a new Christopher Pike book <laughs> in the world. And so I started writing this novel and we sent him chapters and he totally did not send me anything back oh except for encouragement. So he cheated but, you. Oh, he absolutely did, Kevin. But he like gave these like first drafts of this novel to his girlfriend to read, and they both sent me back not like comments, oh. and it was mortifying because it's like <laughs> not, I just it was just things to make him give me what I wanted. <laughs> but that I I keep thinking about, it, and it's someone who writes so much. I mean, I, I write nonfiction. But it was just so much fun, and it, I don't even know if I can qualify it as true nonfiction. It was definitely inspired by life. I mean, it's there was this Michael Walzer essay, and the problem of dirty hands was this philosophical work I read way back in graduate school. And the idea was that we want our politicians to appear to have clean hands, like to appear to be morally good. Uh-huh. But we want them to be dirty enough that they'll like throw an elbow when we need them to, or even like, go to war when it means protecting the common good. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing this novel about a well-meaning woman who runs for city council, <laughs> <laughs> and the moral hoops she ends up having to go through. And in order to try to answer that question, like, can you have political power? And remain good, or does it do something to you morally? So I I kind of want to finish that just so I can figure out what I think the answer to that question is. But I don't know if anyone other than Kevin slash Christopher Pike will ever read it. Um, I want to read it. So there's another one. Another. Okay. Thank you, Kevin, for that dirty trick because I think you should be doing that project. That sounds amazing. Yeah. What is the best editorial advice or relationship you've ever had? So, um, in terms of advice, I'm not sure. <laughs> but when I was writing regularly for Good Magazine back when Good was like in the in the heydays of Good. <laughs> Jed Obam 
was my editor there, and he was just like encouraging and would always ask for more and for like just some intriguing questions. And I ended, I actually met him when he was initially a staff writer there, mm. and I had pitched that infamous now essay on Xennials yes. and that cusp generation between Dead X and Millennial, and he thought, I, I said, I think we're lucky, and he thought that I was totally wrong, and we ended up doing, like, uh, a debate piece. So, years later, when Xennials took off and it was being misattributed, he stepped right up and helped, like, redirect people to oh, the original piece, and they made sure I got credit for it. Um, and we still email back and forth. It's every month or a couple of months. He's now freelance too, so it's more of just like reading each other's stuff. And when it comes when it comes up again, he's like, "Did you see this last thing?" Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah. Well, no, I had emailed him just like, "What the heck do you think is happening?" <laughs> <laughs> And now there's the Xennial with the Z, the other, the new, the newest one, right? Yeah, I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> and I, 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 the thing that drives me nuts, I mean, of all things to have pseudo recognition for, I mean, I, I think what I've learned through this experience is one, people just don't want to be millennials because they're so maligned, and two, that. There's also this, people want, like, an in-group, they want a kinship mm -hmm. with other people, and they want to, like, have that nostalgia mean something. So, right. yeah, it's, it's weird. <laughs> What's your favorite nonfiction read so far of 2019? So, I'm a library nerd. So I, I finally read Susan Orleans, uh library book oh, this year. Oh, yeah, it's on my list. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I, I really loved it. I like just really growing up in this library it meant a lot to me. But like I love Emily Nussbaum. I'd rather read She's about her favorite. watching TV and like watch TV. <laughs> yes, absolutely, me too. It's like, yeah, I, know, like it's the first thing I do when I get the New Yorker, is there another Emily Nussbaum article? Cause... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the like, reason I have a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> but I also I really like Peggy Ornstein and uh, Carmen Maria yes. Machado. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Alexandra Petri, which I just discovered, I just learned is pronounced Petri, not Petri. Oh. But the Washington Post, she's hilarious. And anytime I think, Something in the world is just dumb. That's my best assessment of it. She has something <laughs> wonderful and satirical to say about it. That clears up exactly why it's dumb. <laughs> That's an amazing tool, survival tool to have in your back pocket, for sure. Yeah. 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 What's your dream assignment if money to travel and research were not a concern? <sighs> That's a better way to say it. I mean, if it, if it can involve time travel, too. Yeah. <laughs> where? I, to where? To when? Yeah, so this is, like, maybe a weird thing to want to time travel for. I had this book idea years ago. I really did historic 
women apostates and atheists (laughs) because it's so unusual even like it's just becoming more common for women to like question their beliefs now um and do so openly but generations back it was just such a radical thing to do and um i was really into this woman ernestine rose she's such a character she's like one of the very first women's rights advocates uh, and activists and she was like openly atheistic and she like had divinity students come protest her and accuse her of being common scold <laughs> and I mean Elizabeth Cady Stanton I find interesting yeah. she definitely made terrible mistakes resisting like the 14th and 15th amendment because she was so angry at an injured women but the, like the woman's Bible, which she edited, like having the the nerve to say we're gonna edit the Bible <laughs> and we're gonna like just top out all this misogynistic nonsense. And here you go. <laughs> this is this is the improved version in the time in which she lived. Like, what is up with these ladies? <laughs> they would just be. It's I I love reading about them, and if I had endless time and you know a time machine to those the sorts of characters I would just love to spend a lot of time on that's another book I would buy so if you need <laughs> a very small sample to put in your book proposal about your target audience you could just put me down and I will that sounds amazing well Sarah Stancorp thank you so much for being on the show i look forward to reading your piece today and everything else you write thank you thank you thank you effing shakespeare is a production of bloomsday literary in association with houston creative space hosted by kate martin williams and jessica cole and produced by me fu lu our interns are jennifer overfield renya and lily wolfmeyer Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. And we didn't talk about chili, but I saw your response to Cincinnati chili. <laughs> and, and Kate is a vegetarian also, but we understand that not everything needs to be centered around meat. <laughs> Well, and I'm like such a weird owl. I mean, I ordered the vegetarian uh, at Skyline, and then with half the cheese. So <laughs> I, I like, no one knows what what to do with. Me. <laughs> posters, okay. Yeah. Okay, let's say it like that. When you say let's, do you mean you or do you mean me? Let's both do it <laughs> like that. That's how the contraction is normally used. <laughs> In English. In unison? Okay, you say the first part, okay. and then I'll say what you have to do to win a book. It's not me, it's you. Yeah, it's not me, it's That's you. That's going to be the subtitle no, of our podcast. I, I, usually, it's not you, it's me. Okay? <laughs> Shakespeare, it's not but, you, it's me. <laughs>